This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Well, good morning, Trinity. Thank you for letting me divest myself of the robes. It's a little warm. Uh, If you are a visitor, this summer we have been in the Psalms and kind of studying it together. And we're reminded that the Psalms are the ancient hymn book of Israel and their lyrics and songs. And these songs are meant to shape and form us and shape us in our inner lives. And so this morning we are studying Psalm 84. If you'll take a moment to open it up in your Bible or we have it also there in your bulletin. Now, if you were uh, raised in uh, ancient Israel three times a year, every year, you would have to make a pilgrimage to Mount Zion or, or Jerusalem. This is stipulated in Deuteronomy 16 for the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You had to make this trek. No matter where in Israel you lived, this was absolutely required. This was not optional. But though it was a required pilgrimage that you had to make three times a year, it was still, you believed it and understood it to be a means or an instrument of deep joy. So Psalm 84 is this traveling song. It was on your playlist as you made this trek. Remember, there were no planes, trains, or automobiles. So you had to do this on foot or maybe with a camel. And sometimes the terrain was hard, and sometimes there would be inclement weather, and it was a tough trip. But even so, Israelites understood this journey to be one filled with joy. And why is that? It's that the intensity of their love for God was so radiant that it changed this duty, this required duty, into a delight See, being in the presence of God, going to Mount Zion was their one holy obsession. Of course they knew. Of course Israelite knew that God was um, omnipresent. Of course they knew that God was in the hill countries of Israel. You didn't have to go to the temple to experience the presence of God. But they longed for it because they understood that private spirituality by itself was toxic. And they longed to be with the presence of other believers and experience that unique communal joy with God. So what we're going to do today is we're going to study Psalm 84, which is this traveling song. It's a song of joy that was written by the sons of Korah. Now, if you'll let me extend this introduction just a little bit longer, because you need to know who the sons of Korah are. All right. So if you read the book of Genesis, you'll find there Abraham, and he has a son, which is Isaac, and he has a son, which is Jacob. And Jacob had what? 12 sons, and those 12 sons, of course, become the 12 tribes of Israel. You're following. Of those sons, one of them was Levi, and from the tribe of Levi came all of the priests and all of the temple workers. Well, in, Genesis, or in Exodus, we come to find out that Moses and Aaron come from the tribe of Levi. So he, they take Israel out of Egypt. Now they're in the wilderness. And all that crazy, the shenanigans happen in, in, in the wilderness, you'll remember. There's this one story where Israel's really grumbling, right? They're having a hard time of it. And this man named Korah goes to 250 leaders of Israel, and he starts a revolt against God's appointed uh, man, which was Moses and, of course, his brother Aaron. A revolt. So they go up to Moses and Aaron, and they're like, who put you in charge? Moses, you've blown it. You've gone too far. We're out. 
And so Moses says, well, let's see what God says about this. So the sons of Korah stand up on one side and Aaron and Moses on the other side and they pray. And the earth opens up and swallows Korah and these 200 men. I mean, this revolt, according to God, was wicked. Now, why do I tell you all of this? So why do I mention this? The descendants of that revolt leader, Korah, is who wrote Psalm 84. I mean, who would have guessed that? That's the lyric writer. Are they embittered by their parents' rebellion? Or do they have a unique perspective, actually, to teach us about the nature of real happiness and real joy? And let me just say, you guys, this is so relevant. Everyone is talking or thinking about happiness and joy. Your neighbor, who doesn't believe about God at all, is thinking about joy and happiness. It's relevant. Blaise Pascal, famous old guy, philosopher slash mathematician, he writes this. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The will of man never takes even the slightest step unless it is to this objective. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. He's saying, listen, everyone's looking for happiness, and maybe they take different routes, and maybe that route gets them there or not, but everyone's taking a step towards it. So what we need to do today is really look into the logic, according to the Bible, of joy and happiness. And we're going to do it this morning through three Beatitudes that we find in Psalm 84. Remember what a Beatitude is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, or the Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6, where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, and it's just blessed, blessed. We're going to find three Beatitudes in Psalm 84, in verse 4, in verse 5, and verse 12. And those are going to be like footers or headers for three ideas that I want us to discover as we study it. And it's this, we unlock deep joy in this journey of life through acceptance, pain, and trust. Joy through acceptance, pain, and joy, and trust. And that is, um, that is our, our outline for this morning's study. So if you would, in reverence to God's word, would you stand with me as we give ourselves carefully, diligently to Psalm 84. Here now the reading of God's word. To the choir master... According to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the house of wickedness. 
For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but not these words. They will endure forever. May he bless it for you and me. Amen. You may be seated. When I first met my wife, and I mean laid eyes on her for the first time, she was wearing this uh, New York Yankees Derek Jeter t-shirt. She's wearing boy jeans and uh, like those Adidas flip-flops. That's what she was wearing. And I thought, all right, you got my attention. Like this is, she's kind of cute. Like I'm like, I, I am a huge baseball fan. While I don't like the Yankees, I thought, you know, we could get there. Baseball commonality is going to be great. So, you know, we began to date. And indeed, I married this lovely lady. I uh, have no regrets. But let me just tell you, that first day that I ever laid eyes on her, it was all smoke, smoke and mirrors, right? I, got, I, I just didn't understand. See, she did uh, ballet for 20 years, reads Jane Austen, and she likes to sew. Like, what? Like, what happened there? Uh, she's kind of a girly girl in that sense. I thought I was going to be watching sports with her, but it appeared that, uh, you know, that just wasn't going to be the case. Now, I love uh, baseball. And so, you know, for half the year, I'll turn on, watch the best team on the earth, Houston Astros. And um, I just expect that I'm going to be watching it alone because my wife doesn't care much for baseball. But you know what? That woman finds herself right beside me watching baseball. And, and we have a couch. Now, when I say right beside me, I mean right beside me. We have this couch that could fit three or four people. But no, she sits right beside me because she just like likes to feel the warmth of my shoulder because she just like wants to be with me. And if it means watching a little baseball, she just wants to be with me. I am really a blessed man. Like a really blessed man. I'm so thankful for this. I mention this because... That longing that a man expresses in that moment, just wanting to be with me, even if it's putting up with baseball, is just a fraction of what the psalmist is describing and feeling. There is this intensity in the writer, in the lyricist, of wanting to be near to God. The first beatitude, verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Translation, Deep, secure joy for those who are most at home when they're in God's temple, when they're in God's arms, when they're in his presence. And the intensity of that sentiment is really seen right there in verse 2. He says, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My, My heart, my flesh, they sing for joy. In other words, the pilgrim, as he's doing this pilgrimage, right, he can't wait to get there because being with God is unlike anything, unlike anything in this world. But why? Why is God's presence uniquely desirable? There's one hint in verse 3. Look there. It says, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself. Now, what is this? Well, the temple in Jerusalem was really ornate and had these decorations, and birds would actually fly into the crevices of the decorations and make a nest there. You know, a man and I had the privilege of going to Europe, and we saw these ancient castles and these ancient churches that were gorgeous, right? And sure enough, birds would make nests in the decorations. So the psalmist, he's imagining like the sparrow, the sparrow that has traveled a long distance, right? And then he makes his home in the decorations of the temple in Jerusalem. 
And the logic is this. If the sparrow, and let me just say a word about sparrows. In the ancient world, sparrows were considered worthless, right? Like in Matthew 10, Jesus says, if you can buy two sparrows for one penny, like it's kind of funny, right? Like that means they're virtually, of, they're insignificant, they're of no worth. He says, if the worthless sparrow is accepted, if the worthless sparrow, the insignificant one, will not be turned away, how much more the worshiper? You will not be turned away, right? You see that? You're valuable. I know that you're weary. I know you've messed up. You will not be turned away. And that acceptance is what the Bible teaches. But let me tell you, that is not what is understood, not in the church or outside. You know, what we believe, what we intrinsically, intuitively believe, falsely, is that the joyful life, the happy life, is found in the palace of your own making. But listen, that palace is a house of cards. Because in the palace of your own making, you absolutely can be turned away. In the palace of your own making, you are only valuable because of what you bring to the table, what you produce, what you provide, your resume. In the house, in the, in, in the palace of your own making, acceptance is quite conditional. And you better keep up the pretenses or you're going to get kicked out of the club. And everyone has started believing this. And our children... They've got this pent-up resentment towards church, right? And so if you could think about church, it's like, okay, we need to come to church. We're going to dutifully do this. It's not where joy is, but, but it's just a pit stop to the palace, to the house of cards, because there, that's where the real joyful life is. And it's eating us up on the inside. Somehow, the presence of God with his people has, we, have, we have lost this vision that the weary can come and be accepted. Maybe you don't even believe that today. Blessed, deep joy are those who dwell in the house of the Lord, who are most at home in God's arms and the accepting arms of your Savior. All right, so that's how the, the psalmist, the lyricist, starts us out, right? That's the first beatitude. So joy through this acceptance. The second one is joy through pain. Look at the second beatitude, verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. I was recently reading a series of essays on prisoners of war uh, from the Vietnam conflict, from the Vietnam War. And I read this one in 1966, a major, James Kassler, flying an F-105. He gets shot down in enemy territory. When he lands, he breaks his femur, and it actually goes into him. He's deeply wounded. He gets captured, and he gets thrown into Hanoi Hilton. I don't know if you know much about that, but it is a death camp, a torture camp, where they bring in the prisoners of war, and they torture them. And these guys report that from 6 a.m. in the morning till 10 p.m. at night, they are beat up. His head was smashed repeatedly. His back was whipped over and over and over again. His face was so beat that his mouth was disfigured and he lived perpetually with ruptured eardrums. And that's not even the worst part. He gets thrown into this small room and is put into solitary confinement. There's no bathrooms. 
So none of his, so he has to live in his own fecal matter and he, his wounds cannot be healed properly. And they blare in this, the, this loud blaring music over and over and over, night and day. Can we all just agree that those are absolutely the worst circumstances one could possibly imagine? It's awful. How did he, James Castler, and others survive that for six years? I mean, how did they endure the pain? How did they endure the isolation? You know what the prisoners of war said? Worship. That's what they repeat. They said they didn't even have a Bible. But what they would do in these still moments is they would just, every piece of Bible that they had ever heard in their whole life, they're trying to reconstruct the scriptures and let those words pour over their souls. Can you imagine? James Castler says he could remember Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus says, Lo, behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And he says, ends of the earth. And he says, those words brought me so much joy and consolation. It was moments of worship that transformed their pain, you see, their circumstances. That's the power of worship that's described in the second beatitude. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Not blessed are those whose strength is in their circumstances. Not blessed are those whose strength is in themselves. And so for the psalmist, as it was for Major James Castler, happiness, joy isn't tied to their circumstances. Notice what the psalmist says there, passing through, verse 6, passing through the valley of Baca. It says, as they go through the valley of Baca, and that just, that means uh, the valley of tears, the valley of weeping. As they pass through it, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. So this, if you could imagine the pilgrim going, this would have been a part of the, the trek that's really hard, and it's grueling, and it's dangerous. And listen, it's not that they're naive. It's, they, know, they know when things are hard, all right? They're not just being naive to the hard realities of this pilgrimage, this life. But nevertheless, while they're in the Valley of Baca, the Valley of Tears, they're singing with joy and delight. How? There's this play in the Hebrew, you can't see it in English, but the word pools right there sounds like in Hebrew the word blessings. It's like the valley, the valley, this dark, grueling place is filled with puddles of blessings. Like, how is this possible? Well, the pain is transformed into an instrument of deep joy and consolation only when. Our strength is God. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, Lord, not our circumstances. Now, if you could believe this, it would totally transform your life. It's so simple. But if you could really get this deep, it would transform your life. But tons of Christians, Christians can't get here. Listen, because what I want to do is I want to just pause, and I want us to take this internal, honest inventory, right? Don't answer these questions, but listen, are you happy? Are you happy? Or let me say it like this. Would the people who know you the best, the people who really see you, right? Not a church. We're all faking it, right? People who see, would they, what would they say? They say, yes, you are a person who exudes joy and peace, and when you're around people, you are a life giver, 
right? You're a life giver. You're not, you don't suck life. You give life. No one has to walk on eggshells around you to keep you happy, right? You're emotionally buoyant. You, don't, you aren't prone to diving deep into self-pity, you know, when you get quiet, a little bit grumpy. No one would say you're touchy, right? You can laugh at yourself. You can receive critique. You're not touchy. Come on. Be brutally honest with yourself. Now, if that's not you, why? If that's not you, why? What is the one thing that you need that you don't have right now? What is that one thing? If you just had that one thing, you could finally be happy. What is it? If that one thing is anything other than the presence of the divine life, then you're not getting what the psalmist is teaching. Because for you, though you would never say it this way, it's blessed are those whose strength is in their circumstances. The reason why you are so hot and cold is because your circumstances are hot and cold and variable. Maybe it's the office politics. Maybe it's the stock market. Maybe it's the traffic. But there's no emotional buoyancy because your emotional life is tethered. It's coupled to your circumstances. And you've got to decouple them to something that's constant. Listen, I have, uh, I've lived in Puerto Rico for 10 years now. There are two kinds of people. Some people, Christians... Right? They come to Puerto Rico and, and, and it crushes them, right? Their expectations of what the life they're going to get is crushed and they're perpetually grumpy, right? We call this negative Ned, negative Nancy, right? Chronically complaining. Their negativity is like overwhelming because nothing is ever good enough. And their mood is always tied to their traffic patterns, to their circumstances. And instead of saying, God, like, thank you for, like, creating this divine conspiracy to expose these things because I need to change. I want to I figure out what I'm tethered to. Instead of doing that, they settle into their negativity. And dare I say it, they even have good reasons for justifying it. Their argumentation is flawless. There's another kind of person, though. And the moment that they detect that they are emotionally coupled to the Valley of Baca, right? The Valley of Tears. At that moment, when they're in the Valley, you know what they do? They worship. They worship and they say, God, be my strength. And in fact, Lord, these hard moments are the precise occasion where I am asking you, Lord, to do something new and deep in my character, in my joy. It's kind of like that, like the man who's been sedentary his whole life, and then the doctor says, Hey, you have a heart disease. And he uses that occasion to say, I will change. I'm not going to stay the same. I'll change. I'll notice. Listen, uh, moving to Puerto Rico or moving to the United States can be really disorienting spiritually. But it is necessary. Receive it because it shows you the stuff that was always there, but it was hidden. And God is surfacing it and saying, hey, I want to I do business with you in a new way. I want you to need me more. You might say something like this. God, why don't you be my strength? Why don't you accompany me? God, if I have you, 
God, if I have you, I have everything. Will you take a few moments this week, go to a friend, and say, listen, shoot it, tell me straight. Don't tell me what I want to hear. Don't tell me what I want to hear. Just tell me the truth, because I want this to be the occasion to find new joy in you, even in the pain. Amen? All right, so let me move to our final point. So, so far what we looked at are the first two Beatitudes in verse 4 and 5. We found that joy comes through acceptance. It comes through even pain, all right? Let's turn our attention to the final Beatitude. Look there, verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So joy comes through trust. Now I have a friend. He's a pastor, indeed. He uh, grew up in the church, but his parents were not pastors. They weren't in ministry. Uh, just volunteers like any other member of the church. And before he was um, in kindergarten, his mother on Mondays would show up to the church administration office and she would just volunteer a few hours just to help with a few things. And so she would take her small boy, four years old, with her because, you know, he wasn't in school yet. And they gave him a job. They said, hey, listen, I want you to go through all of the pews and I want you to grab those little um, golf pencils, you know, that they put in the pews, those little pencils that they use to write for visitors' cards or per requests or your tither offering tithe and offering, take those little, those little pet golf pencils, collect them, sharpen them, and put them back. And he found like, he, to this day, he, he remembers just how much joy and satisfaction he had. And in fact, how formative doing that menial little task in the house of the Lord was for him. And you know what he says? He says, it was better to be a kid sharpening the golf pencils at church than to be a cool kid in the playground. It is better to scrub floors at church than swapping stories at the bar with the city elites. It's better to collect all those gross little used communion cups, right, than to be at some bougie event downtown with the godless. Isn't that the sentiment that we use of the psalmist here? Isn't it? Verse 10, he says, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper, some menial job, a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. To believe that cleaning toilets at church is better than being a guest of honor at some swanky red carpet event. To believe that takes trust because it's not obvious on its face, right? Like, like, do you actually believe that? Are, are you trusting that maybe God sees something that you don't see? He, he sees some angle that you don't see. You have to really trust God that he knows something that you don't know, don't you, to believe that. You really have to trust him. Well, blessed is the one who trusts in you, verse 12. Trust is the key. What do you trust in? I love that word trust because it is the ingredient of faith that the Bible is always looking for. See, belief according to the Bible is never this generic thing, right? You might have a generic belief that the stock market is going to go up, but no one's pushing all their chips to the middle of the table, right? That's just optimism. 
In fact, that's not belief at all according to the Bible. And the reason is that it doesn't have an ingredient of certain and secure trust. That's what makes faith what it is, belief what it is. And the Lord is calling us to trust. And in fact, the good life, the joyful life, is on the far side of trust. And so again, the people of God, as we read these lyrics, we're we're invited to take an inventory. What do you really trust in? I mean, what do you really trust in? Because the human default position is to trust in ourselves. We trust in our bank accounts. We trust in our peaceful circumstances. We are not hardwired to trust in the Lord. The heart that longs to commune, that trust with God, that doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen from nothing. Just as the pilgrim had to like plot out his journey, right? Figure out his playlist for this trip. In the same way, the people of God, we have to have a plan for it. We have to actually work for it. It doesn't mean that your trust in God is any less authentic, even though you're working, in, working it into you. But you do have to have a plan to trust God. Because it won't happen when you're going through the Valley of Baca. It won't. That's not what happens. You have to work it into your soul. There's lots of ways we do this. Let me just offer one. What if, instead of just listening to the sermon and saying, oh, that was inspirational, or not, What if we say, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make Psalm 84 my prayer. Put down the phone. Close the computer. Turn off the TV. I know the silence is a little deafening. Open your Bibles and use these words. And don't just ask God, but beg him. Beg him to give you these deep desires of trust. Beg him. Believe that life with him is better than a thousand places anywhere else. Psalm 84. Let me quickly just summarize and finish up. Thank you so much for your patient listening. So we studied these three beatitudes that structure Psalm 84. It showed us that deep joy comes through acceptance comes through pain, and it comes through trust. Those three things. These things, let me just say that they're just telling you something that is true. This isn't advice. It's saying that is where the joyful life is, whether you agree with it or not. Don't, don't believe in it at your own risk. It's just true. Joy is on the far side of acceptance, pain, and trust. But the question I had as I listened, is how did these lyrics find themselves on the hearts of the songwriter to begin with? Like, how did he find these lyrics on his heart anyway? And then I paid closer attention to verse 8 and 9. We read past it. It seems a little obscure. Look one more time, real quickly. Verse 8 and 9, it gives us a clue. It says this, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. You're anointed. That's the king. All right? That's the king. That's a weird thing for him to say, isn't it? Lord God, listen to my prayer. Look on his face. Look at my king's face. Listen to my prayer, but don't look at my face. Look at the king. Look at the king. 
Isn't that a weird thing to say? Because you'd expect them to say, listen to my prayer and look at my resume. Listen to my prayer, look at my faith. Listen to my prayer, look at my trust. Right? That's what you expect them to say. That's not what he says. Why doesn't he say that? Because Korah's descendants wrote the psalm. And they were crystal clear that they shouldn't have been in the temple of the Lord. They should have been X'd out. And if they are there mopping up the floor of the temple, it is sheer grace. They had no right to that grace. And they're so humbled by it. And it welled up into this longing to just worship them, to enjoy the Lord. And they longed it more than they longed for anything else in this earth. That's what it's doing. And until you can understand that for yourself, until you can say, I have no right to your grace, Lord. Hear my prayer, though. Look at Jesus. Look at my King. Until you hear that gospel message, joy will always be far from you. But will you trust these words? Will you let these lyrics shape you now and forever? Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite the band back up. I'm going to pray for us. Man, I want you guys to, I walk out, we're waiting for a moment when it's right soon, I pray, when we can finish a sermon at a table together. Hear the gospel on our ears. Taste the gospel on our lips. We're looking forward to this, that day. We're going to sing a song. I was inspired by Psalm 84. I pray that gives you new meaning after God's word was preached to you. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your words. Watch over us. Renew our joy. Strengthen our endurance. Give us joy. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.